Hello and welcome back to OPOD. Today we're doing the final segment of the collaboration with UCL and we'll be discussing anxiety today with Dr. Oliver Robinson. Thank you for speaking with us today, Dr. Oliver Robinson. Your title is Professor of Neuroscience and Mental Health. What motivated you to pursue a career in mental health and what are some key questions you are trying to answer in your research? So I've always been interested in people, interested in how people behave and how they react, which made me you know, interested in psychology. Um, and yeah, trying to understand what makes people tick. I also, you know, when I was doing my A-levels and stuff in school, I was really interested in biology um, and like more sort of, you know, not humans like as a sort of whole animal, but like more cells and, and how things. And so that led me also interested in like neuroscience. Um, and so basically throughout my career, I've started, to, you know, I've done studying the brain, studying how the brain works, and then also studying how humans interact and, and um, their psychology and so sort of marrying the two together that's where my title comes from i'm looking at the neuroscience aspect so how the brain works and then but then also the mental health aspect of it so psychology and how people interact with each other so broadly speaking what i'm interested in is how do common mental health problems occur um, at the level of the brain like you know everything that we do is contained within the kind of constraints of our body not just the brain but also the whole rest of your your gut and your stomach and so forth but it all's coming from in, within here obviously in reaction to what's happening in the environment but like the feelings are coming from within here so that's what we're trying to understand it's also a really difficult challenge like we don't really know anything about the brain we know you know we're all right at treating mental health problems but there's an awful lot of people that we're unable to treat and so a better understanding of this kind of thing you know in addition to being fascinated in it i also think it's really important to be able to help people um so yeah so that's 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 um broadly speaking what got me interested in it um but you know it's going to keep me going for a whole career because as i say it's super complicated we're not gonna, we're not nowhere near to fully understanding anything or really close to solving any other problems that we have unfortunately but we're getting there the clinical term for anxiety and depression is psychological distress can you explain what psychological distress might look like so psychological distress, distress is a term. It's not the only term that describes anxiety and depression. Anxiety and depression are you know, their own things in a sense, but what's common to both of them is some degree of psychological distress. Um, what's kind of interesting, especially about anxiety, is that in addition to, you know, they're normal feelings. Everyone feels anxious, like it's actually useful. Like perhaps when you're doing a podcast or whatever, you might feel a little bit anxious. Um, and, that's, and that's helpful. It gets you on your toes, makes you a bit more focused. Or, you know, if you think about a more traumatic environment, walking home in the dark or whatever, you feel a little bit anxious. That's going to prime you to detect the stranger lurking in the corner or whatever. That's a helpful um, emotion. Um, and so you could say it's psychologically distressing, but it's also useful, right? But what happens with um, anxiety uh, disorders and depression is that useful function, you might also experience it at other times. And that's when we might refer to it as sort of distress, psychological distress. So you know, to give the example of walking home in the dark, you might feel anxious, anxious, anxious. Then you get home, you're having a cup of tea, everything's safe, you're all okay, that anxiety should slowly dissipate, right? But in some people, it doesn't, it stays, right? And, and it stays throughout the day, throughout the night, and it ends up getting in the way of, you know, going about your daily life. So with anxiety, what can happen, this is one, one example, is, you know, especially with social anxiety, people might find themselves 
like really worried about you know embarrassing themselves right so i don't want to go out and to that party because you know i'll say something stupid and then i hate myself and what that ends up doing and in extreme cases is people might not leave the house right and so that's an example of of where that kind of feeling which can be useful becomes more pathological and it's you know within the realm of, of, of psychological distress the thing is, when it comes to these mental health conditions, you know, we have terms that we use colloquially, oh, I'm anxious, I'm stressed, or what have you. There's terms that are used clinically, like, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, uh, uh, distress and things like that. The definitions are kind of sometimes useful, sometimes not useful. I mean, fundamentally, the thing that makes something a problem is only known to the individual and, and the people around them, right? Because to, for one person, some kind of extreme trauma is, you know, water off a duck's back. For another person, it's getting in the way of their life. And so where you draw that boundary is going to depend on the individual um, and, 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 and their experiences. But, you know, we don't, it's not necessarily helpful, I think, to get caught up on terms or diagnoses. Like some people find it very helpful to put a label on something. Mm -hmm. Some people find it not helpful. So, you know, it's all a bit blurry, basically. Um, but yeah, that psychological distress would be something where it's getting in the way of your ability to go about your life, basically. So the other one we call more like flight or flight, like just everyday. Yeah, so fight or flight is, is again, that's more like um, the, the adaptive function. You know, you're in the forest and you see a bear, right? I don't know why it's always a bear in these examples. We have bears. Um, but, you know, you see a bear and you're like, oh my goodness, what do I do? Do I run away or do I fight the bear, right? I mean, if you're crazy, you fight the bear and obviously then you die. But, um, but that is a normal adaptive function to seeing a bear, right? But if you have that fight or flight response, you know, when you're just talking to the person at the ticket counter on the tube, that's not helpful at all, right? Because you're just trying to buy a ticket for the tube or whatever. So it's when that thing that can be useful in certain circumstances is engaged in appropriate times that then we think of it more as a, as a disorder. Um, but, you know, most people are going to oscillate between periods of this and, and it, you know, everyone at some point will feel anxious. Everyone probably at some point will feel anxious inappropriately, at least, you know, in their minds. Um, but not everyone does it become crippling and preventing them getting on with their lives. Um, so, you know, it, it, I think it's better in a sense to just not worry too much about the terminology when it comes to mental health. And, and it's more about the individual. When it comes to the science, on the other hand, obviously we have to be quite specific and precise about the definitions. And we can talk more about that if you want to. Um, but from the sort of, you know, as someone who feels anxious, it sort of doesn't matter too much, if that makes sense. That sounds a lot like social anxiety. If you're in a social environment and you have a fight or flight response, yeah. that sounds a lot like social anxiety. Yeah, so, so the clinical term would be social anxiety disorder. Um, yes, it's exactly what it is. If, if, if your anxiety is associated with yeah, that particular environment, but we have different flavors of anxiety disorder based on you know the environment. Generalized anxiety disorder is kind of like could be social it could be you know worrying about being in a car crash or worrying about you know whatever like sort of general stuff um post-traumatic stress disorder is obviously associated with anxiety but that's with a clear traumatic event beforehand they're all flavors of of of, of disorder as it were that are associated with anxiety um no one is you know easier to deal with than any other really but sometimes when you know what the cause of the problem is in the case of social anxiety then that can lead to certain types of treatments um and so, for example, <clears throat> one of the most successful psychological treatments, so when we treat anxiety disorders, we, we have medications and we have psychological treatment. Some work for some people, some work for other people, some work for nobody. <laughs> uh, so some people don't, neither of them works. For, for some people, neither psychological nor pharmacological uh, medication work. Um, 
But when, when it comes to psychological treatment for social anxiety disorder, one of the kind of key treatments actually is to make people face their fears, as it were. So if you're worried about a social environment, social situation, generally what it is you're worried about is, oh, I'm going to embarrass myself and then everyone's going to think I'm an idiot, right? Um, that's often a symptom that people have. So one of the solutions is, okay, let's go and have a social environment. Maybe we'll organize it. Maybe you go to the party um, and then tell me afterwards, how did it actually go? You know, and then you go to the party, you come back, yeah, well, I didn't embarrass myself that time. Okay, that's good. So what you were doing was you were telling yourself that was going to happen, but it didn't happen. So maybe the next time, think about it, and then maybe you go to the thing and see what happens. And it's actually very effective for some people, basically, facing their fears, as it were. Oh, so it's like exposure therapy? It's exactly what okay. it's called, exposure therapy, yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You published a paper in 2019 called What Does the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxies Have to Do with Our Understanding of Anxiety and Depression Symptoms? Can you share what you found? Yes. So that actually was a sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a kind of um, an addition to a, a paper. The paper itself was kind of a dry scientific paper. I can't remember what the title was, but it would have been quite boring. Um, this was kind of like a more fun summary of it to try, you know, the, to hopefully make it a bit more interesting for for, for people who aren't weird, i.e. people who aren't scientists. Um, but so basically um, what that was about was um, we're trying to use sort of new technology to understand anxiety. So you'll, have, you'll be familiar with artificial intelligence and you know how it's going to take over the world. <laughs> um, but it's also quite a useful tool for people like us because we can um, develop artificial intelligent agents or robots. You know, they're not really robots, they're in computers, but let's call them robots for fun. Um, and uh, we can make them do stuff, right? So one of the things we have in anxiety is that um, it changes how you behave um, and it changes... Um, how you might respond to choices. So if I give you a choice between going with A or B, and A is uh, less good, or, or you know, you've, you've gone two restaurants, one is better than the other. If you're anxious, you might go for the restaurant that you know to be better, for example. Or even though the one that's that's worse might have, you know, one really good thing on the menu, but the other stuff is bad. I mean, this is not a great analogy. But anyway, the point being that if you're anxious, um, it changes how you make these choices. Okay. Now, if you can, if it changes how you make choices. Um, what we can do is we can make robots that also make those choices, right? And we can change the, the sort of workings of those robots to make them behave like the anxious person um, compared to like a controlled person. So that's what we did in this, in this study, actually, is we had people do a very simple task, which was a bit like choosing restaurants, which is why I got stuck in that stupid, <laughs> stupid analogy. But we had lots of anxious people and lots of healthy individuals, real people, perform these um, uh, simple computer games where they're making these choices. And what we see is that the anxious people perform differently. And actually what happens is the anxious people, if something bad happens after a choice, they're less likely to choose that again, which makes sense, right? You're anxious, you don't choose the bad thing again, okay? Um, but we don't know why and what causes that. So what we can do is take that data and then we can essentially train our artificial intelligent agents. We can train our robots to behave and perform that task. What that means is we can basically make this army of artificial intelligent agents that perform like the anxious individuals. The reason that's like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is what we've essentially done is we've made an army of robots that are like people who aren't anxious and an army of robots that are like um, uh, anxious individuals. Now, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's a character called Marvin, the paranoid android, which I, I'm probably dating myself uh, with this reference. I think Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy came out in like, I don't know, 70s or 80s or something. But it's also referred to in the, the Radiohead song, Paranoid Android, which came out in, I don't know, probably the 90s. Again, dating myself. So um, Marvin, the paranoid android, it's a joke, right? It's an anxious robot, right? He's roaming about the spaceship going, oh, everything's terrible, everything's going to be bad, right? And it's kind of silly, right? Why would you build an anxious robot, right? Well. 
the reason we did that, we built Anxious Robots, is that once you've done that, you can actually start to pull apart what you've done in, in your sort of AI mechanics, the machinery. Oh, we tweak this, this cog, this parameter, this bit of code or whatever, and that's what's changed the, the behavior and it's made them behave like an anxious individual. And to cut a long story short, there's lots of different parameters, lots of different ingredients that can change the way you behave. And in that one study, what we showed is it's something called the aversive learning rate that changed um, when people were anxious or our robots were anxious. And what that means is when people are anxious, it's not so much that they dislike bad things more. I, if um, you're anxious and I give you a bad piece of news and you're not anxious and I give you a bad piece of news, it's not like the anxious person finds that bad piece of news more aversive. I, they don't like it. Nobody likes bad news. Everybody dislikes bad news. What's different about anxious individuals is how quickly they change their behavior in response to that bad bit of news. So whereas someone who isn't anxious might get that bad news day one, day two, day three, okay, finally, I might change my decision. Someone who's anxious might change it immediately, right? And, and we see this clinically. So um, a common uh, anxiety problem is is fear of of, of like um, problems happening on public transport or cry or, or like a, a plane crash for example. Now we know plane crashes are very very rare. So if you hear about a plane crash on the news, you might go, well, you know, that's terrible. But you know, loads of planes fly and they don't crash every day. But if you're an anxious person, you hear about that, you might be right, I'm never flying ever again. What that means is you've changed your behaviour very like much faster in response to that bad piece of news. Now we were only able to get to that kind of particular mechanism of anxiety by going through this whole process of building this army of anxious robots, if that makes sense. And, and this is a part of a field that's got a newish field called computational psychiatry, which is basically trying to use the tools of computer science, artificial intelligence, and things like that to model the computations that the brain is doing that leads to anxiety. Now, this isn't going to help someone immediately get treatment, but that bit of information, okay, it's about changing your relationship with um, your behavior and how you change your behavior in response to bad news, that could eventually help us, you know, tailor therapies to individuals, for example. So rather than try to tone down how they respond to something, you know, maybe you should, you know, well, like we talked about with exposure therapy, do the thing again, do the thing again, and don't change your behavior. Do the thing again, don't change your behavior. Okay, was it fine? Yes, it's fine. Okay, so now we're modifying your, your learning rate, as it were. Um, but yeah, so basically, in that paper, we, we tried to build anxious robots, basically, is where the title comes from. Can I bring up, sorry, quickly, yeah. it was in the Teams meeting that yeah. I watched, um, you basically said that you used shock therapy. No, 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 so you not shock therapy, no. We, uh, so shock therapy is a specific type of treatment for, for treatment-resistant depression, electric, so electrical convul electric convulsive therapy. It's the one that you see in like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? It's the, what, the sort of example of like you know, terrifying psychiatry, like strapping people down and shocking their heads. Now, it, it is actually still used. Is it? Um, yeah, oh, and it's yeah. used in, in very rare, not that semi-rare cases where nothing else works. And it is actually pretty effective. Now, these are people who, you know, their depression is so bad that they've maybe had multiple suicide attempts, they can't really do anything, like everything is extremely traumatic. And in a few of those people, and you know, it's not without controversy, that's true, um, but it is a recommended treatment for people for whom nothing else works, basically. And it might be the choice between something like that 
and it works for you versus you know eventually them taking their own life so it's like it's a very extreme type of uh, treatment not used very commonly and certainly not in the sorts of anxiety and depression we're talking about now this is extremely common this is like something like 20 25 to 50 percent of people experience these systems you'd never be getting electric electroconvulsive oh, therapy. i'm never worried but, about that but, <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. but but what we do do so not we don't do shock therapy uh, what we do is we use electrical shocks as a tool to understand how um uh, what happens in anxiety so um, and the reason we do this is because different people might find certain things. So some people hate spiders, for example. Mm -hmm. I, I don't mind spiders. Yeah, there you, go. you hate spiders, right? <laughs> so we could try to study your anxiety by using a spider. Sorry, I'm doing it again. We could try to study your anxiety <laughs> by using a spider as a, uh, as a sort of negative cue, as a, as a bad thing. Yeah. But that will only work for you because you don't like spiders. Wouldn't work for me because I don't mind spiders. Now, the thing about electrical shocks is what we do is we will attach them to people's wrists or ankles, right? And we can give you a little bit of a shock and you go, oh, that doesn't bother me. And we can get it to a point where uh, keep increasing it and everyone at some point is gonna be, oh, I don't really like that, okay? Now, it's not like extreme agony, right? The, the, the example is the feeling of an um, elastic band, right. like slapping against your skin. So it's not awful, but it's not fun, right? But the advantage is that we can change that for different people and we've got now a stimulus unlike a spider that everyone doesn't like, okay? So now what we can do is we can study how you behave in response to that negative outcome. So one of the things we do um, in our studies is we look at when we tell you, okay, that shock that you don't like, at some point that's gonna happen, right? So imagine I'm asking you to do a simple computer game um, and normally you're just playing that game, right? But then I go, okay, right, can continue playing that game, but at some point you're gonna get an electrical shock. It's got nothing to do with your the, the game itself, but you just that might come at some point. You're probably going to be like, "This is horrible. What, what are you doing to me?" Right. So that is anxiety, right? That feeling of expecting this bad thing to come is the feeling of anxiety, right? Um, and so we can then say, "Now you're safe. Now you're at risk. Now you're safe." And we can look at how it changes your behavior. And that's actually what we did in that study with the robots: is we looked at how healthy people's behavior changed when they were at risk of getting electrical shock when they weren't. And so we're making healthy people anxious and then not anxious. Okay, so now we can use that as a way of studying studying anxiety. But it's a way that works for every single person. Now, obviously, all of our studies are you know voluntary with consent, and probably there are certain people who would never participate in one of those studies because they don't want to get electrocuted, right? So we're actually studying probably a slightly biased sample of people. Um, but it's one of the best ways we have of like manipulating anxiety within the lab. Now, one of the nice things about it as a neuroscientist is that you can do the exact same manipulation in an, a non-human animal model, right? So you can do the same thing to rats, you can do it to monkeys or whatever, which allows you to do slightly more complicated things and study different things than you would be able to in humans. So that allows you to actually get closer to understanding your neurobiology because different animal models have certain relationships to human models and things like that. So we can actually, you know, better get closer to understanding what's happening in the anxious brain, as it were. But no, we don't use shocks as a therapy. It's far from it. We're using shocks to make people anxious, but only a little bit. Like it's not, you know, it's not awful. Otherwise people wouldn't do our studies. Are there certain demographics that are more at risk of developing psychological distress and why is this? Yes. So, I mean, the thing to remember is that these are all general um, so yes, there are certain demographics, but it's not to say that if you're within a certain demographic, you're definitely going to become anxious or depressed. And if you're not within that demographic, you're not going to become anxious or depressed, right? It's all kind of broad. Now, things like depression and anxiety, we know, are much more common in women, for example, than men. 
um, when you look at the diagnoses. Now, that might be because the underlying neurobiology and the underlying vulnerability makes women more vulnerable. But equally, it could also be that because of society and the way we set things up, men are less likely to talk about their mental health and things like that. So, but it's probably a bit of both. Um, generally speaking, you know, m m pretty much all psychiatric and mental health conditions are more likely in people um, with difficult upbringings. Now, that might be for all sorts of reasons, you know, uh, childhood trauma because of, um, you know, the family environment, but also minoritized status, like being an immigrant, being in an environment that, you know, is unfamiliar for you. Like all of these things can contribute to it. Um, but it's sort of broadly speaking, any mental health problem is a combination of, you know, your underlying vulnerability and your, um, the environment that you're in. So you might have a really high vulnerability um, because of your background or because of your underlying genetics, you know, for, for, for reasons that nobody really understands, you're more likely to become anxious, but because you're in a supportive environment, you don't then develop it. But equally, there are lots of people with a back, you know, com completely supportive, normal, healthy environment that become extremely anxious and depressed. So with any of these things, it's kind of generalized, you know, gen generally women are more likely to become anxious. Um, people uh, with difficult upbringings are more likely to become anxious and depressed, but it, it, it's not a kind of... Um, so anyone could be a victim, basically. Anyway, exactly, exactly. <laughs> We're all... Um, and, but, but importantly, is like trying to understand why those things happen. Um, we know, for example, that like um, a lot of mental health problems occur post uh, partum, so like postnatal depression and things like that. So obviously that's only going to happen, generally speaking, to women who've given birth. But so that's one factor that might make you know women more likely to experience these things. Um, and also just the environment. So the social environment we live in, you know, we live in a patriarchy, etc., is going to make things difficult for, for. But all of these factors, it's a very complicated, like you know, intermixing of of, of, of vulnerabilities and um, the environment that you're in, basically. Um, so, so we don't really know why people are more likely to become anxious or depressed, generally speaking, but there are these general kind of like um, rules, as it were. Rules, rules isn't the right word, but these general uh, risk factors. Okay, so anxiety yeah. can affect anybody. Yes. But I feel like in my personal experience, growing up, I never suffered with anxiety. But as I've gotten older, and I feel like everybody is just so much more aware of their surroundings and there's so much more to be self-conscious of mm -hmm. i've become anxious in situations that i wouldn't normally yeah. care about yeah so i don't know if it's a case of people being more anxious these days or just the fact that our environment has just become so much more there's just so much more pressure in our, in our environment yeah so so all of these factors are probably true so i think that on the one hand, there's a lot more awareness. So back in the day, you know, stiff upper lip, there's no such thing as anxiety, right? People were probably anxious, they just didn't talk about it, right? So that's definitely a contributing factor, people being more aware of it and being more willing to talk about it and being therefore, you know, recognizing it themselves. There's definitely a factor of, um, you know, as you get older, you accrue more experiences and, you know, you've been to, been in situation 
A, B, and C before, and bad things happen, so therefore you're going to be wary of encountering that, whereas as a child, you've never experienced A, B, and C, and therefore you're not anxious about it. So as you get a little bit older, you do start to accrue these, these experiences. Actually, anxiety and depression, like the, the earliest sort of age of onset is around um, the teens, so, you know, and that's a, ch- a, ch- a period of massive social change. You know, it's when people go through puberty, they start to understand that they're a part of a social environment. You know, when you're, when you're a child, everything's very simple, right? You know, there's you give, give them some rules and you don't have to worry about it once you're a teenager oh my god like all of these hormones rushing you've got to worry about stuff um so so definitely i think as people get older it, it does increase now interestingly with things like anxiety and depression as you get even older they start to decline so as people are like you know elderly actually they have the lowest rates of things like anxiety and depression now that's not to say that there isn't like examples of depressed or anxious elderly people of course there are but um but it's you know as, as you get older um uh, these things decline um, but then there's also all these other factors, you know, we're a much more connected world now, you know, hundreds of years ago, you might only know about what's happening in your immediate environs, obviously, mm-hmm. you're going to get anxious occasionally, but you're not worrying about a nuclear apocalypse, climate change, all of these factors, we're not, you know, 24 seven news cycle, finding out about stuff all the time, all of this is probably contributing to people's anxiety. But again, it's a complicated picture. Um, and we don't really know how much these things contribute and how much they don't. It seems intuitive that the more you find out about bad stuff happening in the world, the more anxious you're going to be. But, you know, it's it's not clear that that leads to more anxiety disorders. I mean, it might make you feel low-level anxious. But, but you know, your experience is, is, is not uncommon. Um, the thing I often say with anxiety and depression, like, yes, we have these diagnoses. Yes, we try to study them as, like, kind of single entities. But the reality is there's as different types of... There's as many different types of anxiety and depression as there are human beings, you know what I mean? So any one person's experience isn't going to be the same as another person's experience. And and, it, and it, I think it's important, especially in the kind of clinical realm, to recognize what someone says, like, I feel I feel like this, this has happened to me, and that's totally true, that's your truth. That doesn't mean that's true for someone else or, or you know, and everyone's experience is different. Um, but yeah, so it's a bit of everything, basically. Yes, probably as you get older, you do get more anxious. Yes, potentially in this modern world, there are things that make people more anxious, but also that just might be your own personal trajectory, as it were, if that makes sense. All of the above can be true. Is there any studies on women who tend to suffer more from anxiety because of like hormonal? So like, because obviously she's saying, like, obviously she didn't notice it as a, as a younger, but now she's yeah. obviously she's grown up, she's had a child. It's yeah. just more likely to feel something so, she's never experienced before. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's actually not that well studied. Um, but yeah, there are, you know, the mo- where it's best studied is in like post-child, you know, childbirth. You have these big hormonal changes and we know that postpartum depression is a very big thing. Um, so we know a little bit about that, but we don't really fully understand. I mean, the truth is, you know, we understand what anxiety is when you ask someone, are you feeling anxious? And they tell you, yes, I'm feeling anxious. We understand that, right? We understand a little bit about what's going on in the brain, doing studies with electrical shocks and so forth. But really, it, 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 we're only scratching the surface, right? And, you know, ho- hormones, neurotransmitters, like your whole body is awash with all of these chemicals and they're all affecting lots of different things. And again, it affects person A differently to person B. So it's it's almost an impossible task to try to fully understand exactly what's happening with, with uh, you know, this hormone and this hormone and that hormone um you know maybe we'll get there down the line but certainly that's probably one of the factors that contributes to women having higher incidences probably you know hormonal differences because you know there are sex differences in that um but we don't really fully understand it there are people working on it but it, you know it's 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 not as well studied as it should be probably so how does um social media impact someone's mental health so the short answer is we have no idea right and anyone telling you that we know that social media does x is just making it up right there is 
you know, it makes sense intuitively that being on social media 24-7, which makes it easier for social interaction to occur, which therefore makes it easier for people to be bullied, makes it easier for people to pile on. Like, it makes sense that that might make people feel unwell, right? But then there are also people for whom social media is literally their livelihood, right? Influences mm-hmm. and so forth. So you can't ignore one and the other, right? I think it might amplify certain social tendencies, right? The way that human beings um, crowd around individuals and ideas and so forth might make some people more anxious and depressed, equally might make other people less anxious and depressed. So I think there is a, you know, personally, I don't like being on Twitter and things like that. I know it's not good for my mental health. There are other people who love it, right? Mm. So they say things. So speaking in generalized, generalized like statements saying, um, social media is causing an epidemic of anxiety is the sort of thing you hear people say like there is actually no evidence for that and and I think with things like social media it's going to bring good and bad I mean I, I remember um, Facebook not on Facebook anymore probably tells you what I think about social media but I remember early on you know people thinking oh gosh this is going to make people feel like you fear of missing out or whatever I remember early on on Facebook you realize actually Nobody's doing anything fun. You know what I mean? Like early on, it was like, just like, you know, oh, you're on a party once a week. I'm not missing out on anything, right? So actually, early on, at least for me, Facebook actually made me feel less anxious because you're like, oh, no one's doing anything good. Um, obviously, as they beca- became more popular and, you know, the people could contail their image, you know, make their image crafted a bit more. And it looks like everyone's having these beautiful, wonderful time. Maybe that makes people more anxious. Um, but the honest truth is that we just don't know. And for every argument that it might be making people worse, there are probably other people that it's making, making them better. Um, I think, as with anything in moderation, used carefully you know it probably it can probably help people you know people build careers on social media probably good for them um but yeah we're, we're only just beginning to understand how these how these things work it's actually funny because a lot of people who build careers on social media talk about how they're anxious and how the social media over like help them overcome it so yeah, it's exactly really just like a mixing pot of like different types of people yeah which is true about everything right you know as i say everyone's different there's as many types of anxiety and depression around individuals so some people it's good some people it's bad it just depends on how you deal with it and how you, um, how you make things work. Well. how you use it exactly exactly you know we do know that things like social media are good at like amplifying you know, certain bad things, right? The way that engagement, mm-hmm. you know, you get sort of hate speech and all that sort of stuff being amplified. That's clearly not a good thing. Um, but, you know, that's ne- not necessarily the same thing as causing mental health problems, as it were. Um, so, yeah, as someone who doesn't really like social media very much, I'm reluctant to say that it's definitely causing anxiety and depression in people, even though it would be, you know, you know, it's an easy it's thing to say. On the <laughs> yeah, it probably is, but in some people it's not. So it's, you know... Yeah, because people tend to be a lot meaner on the internet because they have that shield of protection being yeah. anonymous. Keyboard warriors. Yeah. 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 But then on the other hand, because it's a shield anonymous, if you're good at doing that, you can just say it doesn't matter because yeah. it's just, you know, it's just nonsense. But if you're on the receiving end, then it does matter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I tend to use social media mostly for... Inspira- like inspirational yeah. quotes and stuff Ideas, like Instagram. Pictures, yeah, just yeah. simple yeah. stuff. I'm not trying to I find that. that's the good yeah. part of social yeah, media. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It can build you up. Yeah, There's yeah, a lot yeah. of motivational challenge like yeah. channels and stuff. Yeah, some, some networks are better than, for that than others. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not Facebook. Maybe more like no, Instagram. <laughs> like yeah, videos yeah, yeah. that yeah. are more like this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a bit more <laughs> <laughs> informational. Why does it seem like anxiety affects a lot of adolescents more than anybody else? Um, I think it's because these problems emerge in adolescence. So you, you're, a, a, you know, a happy, smiley child. 
you become a teenager, you undergo adolescence, and that's when, the, for the people who have the vulnerability, that's when it starts to emerge. And it's because adolescence is a period of massive social change, right? You start to um, form peer groups and you start to, you know, uh, find who you're going to find attractive, attractive, all these sorts of things, and all these hormonal changes occur. And with that, those big changes, comes the precipitating factors that lead to things like anxiety and depression. Now, there, it's definitely possible to become anxious and depressed later in life, for sure, um, but just often, you know, in general, it, it'll start to emerge for people who will emerge in later. It'll start to emerge when they're adolescents, just because it's a period of massive change, basically. And it may be, as you said, driven by the hormonal changes and so forth. Um, but it's probably also just because of the way that adolescents behave and the social. You're, you're starting to work out who you are as a human being when you're adolescent. Right? You're starting to branch out on your own. Um, and yeah, and it, it's also a period of extreme uh, of a lot more risk taking because at the neuroscientific level, um, the way your brain works. Um, you haven't quite got the control that you have as you as you get older, and so adolescents are, are famously take a lot of risks, right? And and with those risks can come, you know, bad outcomes. You know, start experimenting with drug use, for example, that might lead to more fact, you know, things down the line and so forth. So it, it emerges in in adolescence. It's just a sort of known f known phenomenon. Off yes. of that question, sorry. Yeah. Um, if you are like, for example, a parent who has really yeah. bad anxiety, do you think that it's a possibility that you can impression your child? the same kind of like of your symptoms and the way you, you can it's, that affect it's a very good question so it's hard to tease these things apart because one of the things we know is that you know genetics plays a, a, a strong role so parents who are um, more likely to be de are depressed their children are more likely to become depressed so one argument you might say is well that's because the depressed parent is making the child uh, mm -hmm. depressed but actually it's not it's just that you both have the same underlying vulnerability that's that's, that's leading to that um, we just don't really know to be honest like um, there is an argument to be made that certain types of behaviors are more likely to make you anxious or depressed and you know certain types of parenting behaviors might but anyone telling you that they know that that's what's happening you know, other than other than like trauma, like you know, serious abuse as a child is clearly going to lead you to become you know uh, is, is much more likely to lead to problems. Or not, again, not always, um, but beyond that kind of more lower level stuff, it's just not clear really. Yeah, um, you can make an argument both ways basically. Yeah, adolescence is a period of a lot of change, a yeah. lot of where you become uh, like independent, and yeah. there's a lot of like body changes, a yeah. lot of um, environmental changes and stuff. Yeah. But something that you said that I found very interesting was you said during COVID and the lockdown, um, anxiety was... This is, I think this is a good cautionary tale for why when someone tells you X leads to Y, right? So if someone says social media leads to people being more anxious, you should be cautious, right? Because although that might sound obvious, it might not be true. So a good example of this was during COVID. You had lots of people saying COVID is making people more anxious. Now, obviously, it makes sense. You know, you've got a global pandemic. You might die. That's how we felt early on. Like, if you go outside, you might die. That's going to make people more anxious, right? But we happen to have some longitudinal studies running where we'd studied people before COVID and we'd asked them about how anxious, how depressed they were. And just because we'd been running the studies and we needed to collect the new data, we collected some of that data during the pandemic, right? And actually we showed that in, in, in some of our samples, anxiety actually went down, right? During the pandemic, like in the real thick of it where we weren't leaving our houses. So that, although obvious to a talking head on TV, COVID makes people anxious, right? It, unless you've actually done the research, you don't know for sure that that's true. 
And actually, one of the reasons I think with, with anxiety is that it depends on the type of anxiety you have, right? We talked earlier about social anxiety. If you're socially anxious and now you're not allowed to leave the house, well, that's a relief, right? Yeah. I don't have to talk to people, right? I choose when to talk to people, right? So I think with any of these things, it, it's, 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 it's a, that's a good example of where simplistic messages, you actually have to do the work to see. And no one's, you know, there are people working on the relationship, for example, between social media and mental health. Um, but, you know, the story might be much more complicated than it seems at first glance, if that makes sense. Um, and obviously, for some people, COVID was terrible, right? <laughs> you know, it's not to say that COVID was great for everyone's mental health. It's just to say that there are certain people for whom it was actually, you know, for a short period of time anyway, was actually helpful for them. It's just that, the, uh, you know, everything's complex and everything interacts in complicated ways. And mental health, going back to the point I keep making over and over again, it depends on the individual and you know, what your environment is, what your circumstances are, how you react to certain things. So on the topic of social media, are there any apps or websites that you would recommend people looking for support or information regarding mental health? So the, I would say be very, very careful. Um, the, I would generally say go to the NHS websites, go to your GP um, if you're worried about uh, your mental health. Um, there are, you know, private therapists you can access, but I would always start with seeing your GP. The reason for this, it's a wild west there are lots of apps out there claiming they can do X, Y, Z. I've worked with some of these companies, um, and I know that the evidence base just isn't there f f for most of these things. And you've got to be very careful about, you know, if someone's really anxious, really depressed, and have, having them do something that's not helpful is, is not a good idea. So always talk to a healthcare provider. There are digital app-based solutions that do work, but they will almost always be accessed through a healthcare provider. They won't be something you can Google, essentially. Google, in a sense, is not ideal because you can find all sorts of terrible stuff out there. Having said that, again, whatever gets you through the day, right? So if you find that um, certain types of soothing music or whatever helps with your anxiety, that's brilliant. Go for it, right? Um, but if you're really, really feeling unwell, if you're really anxious, really depressed, or you know someone that is, because oftentimes people don't necessarily recognize it that much in themselves, or they're not, you know, especially when you're depressed, you just might not want to do anything. It's important that you get them to see a, a healthcare provider. Um, yeah. Which is, following that question, if you are a person who's anxious and find it hard to call the doctors, yeah. how, what would you suggest those you can't? Well, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I would say, uh, there are websites, so if you go to the NHS website, there is there, there will be advice there that you can do without talking to somebody. Um, there are things like NHS 111, there are phone lines, um, uh, mental health. If you go to charities, like there's charity Mind, um, like they have resources for people that don't necessarily involve seeing a healthcare provider. They might have drop-in sessions, they might have places you can go. Like half the battle with mental health is recognizing that there's an issue and trying to do something about yeah. it. And often for many people, just that process of trying to do something about it is all they need. You know, that gets them out, out of the house and that helps them. Um, but it is, it is a challenge. Um, and, you know, the other thing to be honest about is that the mental health care provision we have is, is good for those who are able to get into the system. But the waiting lists for things like psych psychological therapy are, are just too long. You know, that's not really my area, but that's something we need to fix down the line. Um, but uh, unfortunately, there aren't any quick fixes. You know, you might be able to find an app. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to leave, leave you the idea that you could download some app, it's actually bad for you. But if someone's really, really anxious and depressed, like it's, it's probably not gonna be very helpful. Um, well, there are like meditating apps. Yeah, um, yeah. What was the, I used to have so one like, called Calm or something, it had like um, specific breathing. Oh, was it one there? 
have you seen it's the one with the orange thing and it's like breathe in headspace. breathe out headspace there yeah. you go, so, th- so, th- so this is yeah this is actually these apps have um aspects of one of the types of therapy called mindfulness therapy um it's basically kind of like eastern philosophy packaged as a mental health treatment um which actually again can work really well for some people the problem is it actually works it doesn't work for others right so some people mindfulness is actually actively harmful so you know some of the aspects of mindfulness are like sit there and allow the thoughts to happen yeah. in some people that's actually makes them worse in some people it helps right this is why i think it's important to work with a healthcare provider because they know all the different options available to you so there's a whole other set of therapies called cognitive behavioral therapy in many aspects they're almost the opposite of how mindfulness works both of them are successful in some individuals we don't know who will respond to which but like um but you know you don't want to try something it not work and then be like well there's nothing for me because there are many options out there but yes if if something like meditation guided meditation through the headspace app for example um is helpful for you then that's brilliant um but i don't want people to get the idea that there's a quick fix here that you download an app and you solve stuff. And, and I also don't want people to think that if that app doesn't work for them, that therapy doesn't work for them or that you know treatment doesn't work for them. And again, in some people, medication is the only thing that will work for them in about 25% of people, something like that. So there's no app you're gonna de- you know, download that's gonna help you. You need to see a, a clinician and get prescribed something. Um, again, it depends on the individual. Um, but I'd be very hesitant to say, when we're talking about extreme anxiety and depression, like depression, like clinical, there's, there's no app that's probably gonna help you really on its own. What are some common misconceptions or stereotypes about mental health? Um, I mean, stigma is a big one. Um, It's getting better. It's not as bad as it used to be. But the idea that, you know, if you're anxious or depressed, you're weak or, you know, that that it's it's all it's all in your head. You know, Um, sure, it is all in your head and your body, your feelings, anxiety and depression. But that doesn't mean it's not a thing, you know, just because it isn't something that you can ascribe to like some specific physical cause. Like, you know, a broken leg is a broken bone. It's not in your head. It's a broken bone. Mental health problems, in a sense, are all in your head because that's what mental health is. That doesn't make it less bad than a broken bone. If anything, it actually makes it more complicated than the broken bone because we don't really understand our heads or our psychology um, very much. So, um, yeah, the, the, the biggest misconception, I think, is that, that A, it's some sort of sign of weakness. Uh, or, or B, that because because it's sort of in your head, it therefore, you know, it's not a real thing and you can sort of get over it, as it were. Um, I think those are the two two biggest misconceptions. So how helpful would you say is therapy for anxiety and what other options are available for those who are suffering? So for some people, therapy is perfect and it solves all their problems, right? That's probably about half, maybe a li- little bit lower than. We know this from, from our, like, treatment services. If you get into a treatment service, about 50% of people will show some kind of improvement. They might not get completely better, but they'll get some kind of improvement. So about half of people, some kind of therapy, and there are lots of different flavors of therapy, will work for them. Um, in terms, and, But that means that for half of people, they won't work, right? And, and what that means is that, like, if you engage in therapy and it doesn't work for you, you're going to be spending a lot of time with a therapist, maybe a lot of money if you're doing it privately, and it doesn't help, right? So that's, you know, for the people it helps, it's great. For the people it doesn't help, it doesn't, it's, it's not great. And it can lead people to be frustrated with the system, right? Other treatments we have are um, medication. Now, there's really um, one main class of medication, which is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's the sort of primary treatment. These are also known as antidepressants, Prozac. You know, they're all kind of the same thing. Um, that works for maybe a quarter to a third of people, some of whom are the people who the therapy doesn't work for, okay? But again, a large number of people, the medications uh, do not work. There are some other types of medication that you might be prescribed. There's one called Brigabalin. Um, there are things like um, 
very fast acting things um, that uh, called benzodiazepines, which you might be prescribed very, very short period of time. They're very addictive, so you can't use them chronically, but you can use them if, you know, in a, in a, in a for a very short period of time, it can make people very, um, you know, much less anxious. But that's basically all we have. We have a few medications and we have a few different classes of therapy. There is still a subset of people, this is why I study this, there is still a, a group of people, maybe about a quarter, maybe about a, a third, for whom nothing we have works. Absolutely nothing, right? And this is why it's not good enough, the situation we have, it's why I study what I study, because I don't think we're going to be able to close that gap without fully understanding how the brain leads to things like anxiety uh, and depression. But critically, going back to the point earlier, talk to your GP, your GP will be able to funnel you into different uh, avenues of treatment, whether it be medication, whether it be psychological therapy. Um, and, and the key thing is it, it, to know is that you don't know in advance whether you'll respond to one or the other. And, and certain people might not want to take medication, certain people might not want to do therapy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they will or won't work for you. Um, and the important thing is to know that as it stands now, it's gonna take a while, right? You might get lucky and the first thing you try works, if so, brilliant, but for most people, it's a trial and error process of trying different things that doesn't work. And, and nothing is without side effects. The medications have side effects, the therapy has side effects. Um, and so it's really important that you, you, know, you work with someone who's trained in this to try and find uh, what works for you. What are some useful coping methods and techniques you can do to help yourself if you're struggling with anxiety? So I'll go back to my point again. If you're really struggling, go see a healthcare provider, right? But um, it, you know, if it's the sort of mild level anxiety that's not really getting in the way too much, but it's bothering you, yes, you can try different techniques. So there are therapy-based techniques, so mindfulness-based techniques might help you, things like meditation, things like calming music, uh, and so forth. There are specific, um, uh, 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 like, um, tools you can get a book about cognitive behavioral therapy and read about how that works about reframing situations things like that you can do a bit of research into that again it's better with both of these to see a therapist but again if it's low level maybe you might be able to read about this and, and help you out help yourself out exercise is an excellent help for for lots of people right not for everyone but getting out there even if it's just a short walk or if it's going for a run i know myself like i need to run you know multiple days a week otherwise I start to feel really anxious and really depressed I feel lots of energy built up in my body that's not for everyone but again that's a sort of technique that might help uh, help you but whatever works for you really is the answer um, in many in many cases just the simple thought of oh I'm a bit anxious and recognizing it might actually help you that might be all you need um, but but basically if you're really really unwell go see a doctor go see your GP and uh, and um, there's no substitute for getting actual like clinical help if you're in an anxious situation, trying to take your mind off of what's causing the anxiousness could help. Yeah, but that might work for some people. It doesn't work for other people. So some people saying, right, don't think about the thing. That might help you. Other people, it really doesn't help them at all. Um, and so that's that's the difference. In one of the cases, that's one of the differences between mindfulness. Mindfulness might be like, let it wash over you. And uh, in other kinds of cognitive approaches, it might be like, try and think about something different or frame it in a different way. Um, these tools, you just have to work out for yourself, generally with the help of, of someone who's trained, what works for you and what doesn't work for you. If you're lucky, you can kind of work it out for yourself, um, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's, if you're really anxious and depressed, there's no substitute for, for someone who knows, who's seen it lots. And, and then this is the thing to remember, it's probably a good point to end on, is that it's very common, right? And so when you see a therapist, you, it will not be their first rodeo, right? 
when you have these feelings, it can feel like you are the only person in the world that suffers from this. You're the only person who has these crazy ideas, these crazy thoughts. You are not, right? You know, that's not to say that it's not important. Obviously, it's really important. But it is to say that there are people who day in, day out work with this and are able to help. Um, so, yeah, that, that would be my sort of take home message. You are not alone. Speak to somebody. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Oliver Robinson, for meeting Thank us you. today. It's been so informative to talk to you. So thank you for joining us on our final episode. Um, thank you for all our special guests that we've had. And thank you for watching, all of you people. And a big thank you to UCL and Future Formed for making this podcast happen. A big thank you to Aman for being my co-host, wonderful co-host. And Shakira for being an amazing producer. And once again, thank you, Dr. Oliver Robinson, for joining us.